There's so much to trouble us. I've been troubled. So much trouble, so much terror, so much trauma, so much conflict, so much hate. Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness will never overthrow darkness. Only the light can do that. Hatred will never drive out hatred. Only love can do that. So we've given God our praise, our money, our children. Now let's give God, God who is love, our attention as we just take a deep breath to make space for the coming of the word to us this morning. Just inhale deeply and exhale, making room to hear the word that will calm and quiet our souls and speak to us of the ways of love that can meet conflict and contention and drive out hatred and violence. Philippians 4, 1 through 9, Paul says, just really beseeching, begging the congregation, the beloved. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge... Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. And now let this psalm lead you into a prayerful posture. For these moments, as you hear and receive it, let your wants, your desires, your requests be known to God, your good shepherd, And be centered 
in God's goodness coming to you. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For God, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they do comfort me. And you, being good, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. The word of the Lord. Amen. Beth, thank you. I I kind of feel like, you know, opening up the lectionary and seeing these passages, I go, oh, I think God knew we needed these today. Um... I know just from conversations with many of you this week, um, some of you like kind of hit your threshold. There's this term used to reflect our ability to change and it's called our adaptive capacity. And um, I think for so many people, it like peaked this week, like that's it, you know? And like, what do you do then when you feel that, that sort of exhaustion that sets in or the overwhelm or like, and, and I think so often we, we make our world smart, smaller in order to cope. I, um, you know, for me, I was thinking this morning I, I got Wordle and two guesses, and I'm like, it's going to be a good, ge- it's a good day. I'm just going to protect this space, right? Wordle and two. Um, and if you didn't get it, it's okay. Tomorrow you can try again. But, but the, the truth is, I, I think that sometimes when we look and we feel that overwhelmed, we don't know what to do but to sort of retract. And I look at our world around us and I think, you know, what do we do when we panic? What do we do when we get overwhelmed? And I, I think oftentimes, well, if you go to the mall, you're like, oh, we like just start celebrating Christmas earlier and earlier and earlier, right? You just, I, I think it was September 1st, I, I walked into Costco this week and boom, Christmas trees everywhere. And you're like, yeah, okay, Christmas begins in September now. So welcome to our Advent season. Um, this this way of like coping with reality by decorating, you know, that's um I, I love that scene in You've Got Mail where her business, her little bookstore is going under, so she just starts hanging twinkle lights all around, you know, and it's it's this way of trying to find some sort of beauty in the midst of what can I think otherwise feel like it's too much. But this sort of escapism, while I I am guilty of it myself, I'm a total sucker for Christmas decorations. I I, I don't think that we're entirely wrong by latching onto Christmas, but not in, in a small sense of the word, but actually in a way that expands our horizons, that causes us to look not close, but beyond the complexity, beyond the problems, to take our anchor from something much further off. I, I've used this example before, but I love that on like, uh, if you're on a stand-up paddleboard, 
trying to balance yourself, right? And the shakiness that comes in your legs or that kind of thing. And a good instructor will tell you to look to the horizon. And I like that idea that balance comes from a proper perspective, not getting overwhelmed by what's close at hand, but seeing through it to what's unshakable. And Christmas has got that sort of strength to it, actually. That Christmas is a holiday where we celebrate this idea of God's coming. And that term Advent that we use to describe the Christmas season is really Latin for coming. But it's a tension that's created in that season. That we live actually in between these comings. That it's not just about what God has done, but what he has promised to do. And the first is the indicator of the second. And we set our gaze on what's to come. It creates stability. And we live in a world where we see this sort of decline or degeneration, and I think it overwhelms us. We see wars and this inability to create peace. We see now through our phones even more atrocity is just right there in our face. And sometimes it's hard to look away. Sometimes it feels like we can't. What do we set our mind on? And here we see Paul saying on what is beautiful all the things that are true and deep and honorable. This is how we fight back. I like how Brian Zahn said this in a recent book that he wrote. He says, the incarnation is the intervention that saves the world. When everything is on fire, my greatest comfort is the assurance that the world will be saved. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Yes, the world will be saved by the intervention of God. It's this indicator of God's love that God comes in humility and generous compassion to this world to rescue it and to save it. The first advent is this moment of realization. And I love that like even the angels are surprised when it happens. And with the birth of this child, they declare peace on earth. Although so much is still yet to unfold, the cross and all of that is before Jesus at this point, and yet the declaration is peace, the inevitability of this outcome that is secure. What Brian Zahn is saying is like, even when things look out of control, they aren't. Even when things look like they're going all the wrong way or degenerating, there's a promise in the end. And you know that I, I love Tolkien. And, and I think one of the reasons that I love the Lord of the Rings and all of that is I think he tells a story that actually fits well with this narrative that I'm describing. And Tolkien would describe his story as like this battle that he would call a long defeat. That in the end, things are getting worse and worse and worse, but hope is not lost. And all his characters do the little that they can do to fight back against that long defeat. But ultimately for Tolkien, the victory, the hope was in this final moment that would occur. And he even coined this term and it's in your dictionary. It's a word that he made up. He was all about language, but he came up with this word called eucatastrophe. And for Tolkien, this eucatastrophe would happen at the darkest moment when all seems lost, when the enemy seems to have won. There's a sudden joyous turn for the better that emerges. It delivers a deep emotional reaction in the reader, a catch of the breath, a beat, and a lifting of the heart. Just when it looks like defeat is certain, for Tolkien, eagles come in. 
They come in and they rescue out of nowhere. And for him, he, he described this not as like a, to take an easy way out of the ending, but that this is a deep truth of actually the way that the world works. That things will degenerate, that there's a battle that seemingly is ending in defeat, but that victory is sure and that God is the rescuer. And when we have that understanding, it should give our hearts a leap. Which is why Paul, as he's speaking in this, he's saying, rejoice. And he's like, I'm going to say that again. (laughs) Rejoice. Paul, speaking from prison. Paul, chained to a guard 24 hours a day. Paul, in this really humbling, discouraging, brutal place, is like, this is how we fight back. We fight back with joy. We fight back by letting our graciousness be known to everybody. The Lord is near, not worrying about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, praying our requests to God in the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the invitation. In fact, this is the discipline that Paul is encouraging us. What do I do when I feel discouraged? Rejoice. Turns out it's a way of fighting back against despair. And it can sound like putting your head in the sand, right? Or just ignoring, but it's the very opposite of that. It's setting our hearts on the deep truths, the the windows into the beauty that's to come. And realizing that our world is filled with those little windows into what God is doing Every gift is from God. Savor it. The, the church would use this actually as their greeting. They would say to one another, rejoice. Kind of like if you're Hawaiian, you would say aloha. Or if you're in Costa Rica, you would say pura vida, right? This like idea of capturing, like what is at the essence of this? Their very greeting was a reminder. And the Christians would say to each other, delight, have joy. Rejoice. There's a story that I came across this week that I found just kind of delightful. And it's this uh, story of this Scottish priest named Murdo, Mac, Murdo MacDonald, or Padre Mac, as he was affectionately known. And Murdo Mac, uh, Padre Mac, was uh, a chaplain in the military during World War II and was captured and put in a prison camp in northern Africa. And as it turns out, there were British soldiers there and American soldiers, and they kind of separated them into two camps, and there was a wall down the middle. And um, the Americans apparently didn't have a chaplain, so they took Padre Mac and put him over there with the Americans. And there was a chaplain on the British side who turns out to also have been Scottish. And so these two would meet at the fence in the middle of the day, and they would let them interact, but um, they were under guard and under surveillance there. And while the, the German soldiers at that time spoke German and English and French, they didn't speak Gaelic. And these two Scottish priests would talk to each other in their native tongue and share with each other how things were going. And as it turned out, somebody in the British side had smuggled in a radio. And with this, they were able to listen and get updates on how the war was progressing and had heard about the Allied invasion and what was to come and knew all of a sudden that they were going to be liberated. They knew this before their prisoners, uh, the the guards knew. And and 
Murdo talks about it like this. He says, we were still prisoners in a sense, but boy, we walked around and thought we were at a party. We didn't complain about the food anymore. We didn't hate the guards anymore. We smiled at them. We felt sorry for them, even though they were pointing guns at us, and we, even though we were still prisoners. But the truth is, we were set free by the news before even we were set free by the guards. I thought, what a great picture to me of how we live in this world. That our circumstances haven't shifted or changed, and yet this liberation is secure, and we can live in light of that coming joy, that coming freedom. And sure enough, eventually the, they woke up and the guards were gone, the gates were open, and they just ended up walking out of that prison. But this sort of party that he's describing is actually, I think, very biblical of a way to respond in the midst of crisis, which is why Jesus picks this as probably his most common metaphor when talking about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Like a party, a feast, a banquet, and not just a banquet, but a wedding banquet. This is what the kingdom is like. It's a moment of joy. And Jesus' very first miracle that John calls a sign is at a wedding. And it's not accidental. And I love how Jesus, for his big first like unveiling, doesn't preach. He doesn't perform miracles or healings. He just performs one miracle, and it's to turn water into wine, into good wine. And he does it late in the party where you're supposed to be bringing out the bad stuff and all of a sudden, this symbol of celebration and of feasting and of joy. This isn't accidental. Jesus is showing us how to live, to bring our lives filled with life, with joy, with passion. And to dwell on these things, to live in that reality, to set our minds on these things, to live with this sense of celebration. And again, this could sound a bit like escapism. But he's saying, no, it's not that the world doesn't have trouble. In fact, he tells us, you will encounter trouble in this world, but take heart. I've overcome the world And Paul in prison was able to do this, to shift his mind and attention on what was good. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, how he's like, I'm chained to this guard, so it's an opportunity to just share with him the joy that I have, the good news, to bring beauty into this world, in a world that is so desperate for hope. I think that's why Dostoevsky says beauty will save the world. It's like bringing that beauty into this world, into the brokenness. There's a book of liturgy that's been written recently called Every Moment Holy. Has anybody heard of this book? And it's uh, sort of modern day liturgies. In other words, to like, well, to celebrate what he would describe as common events like making coffee or changing a diaper. He's created prayers that you can say in these moments and they're beautiful. It, It sounds a little bit silly, but the truth is they're actually deeply reflective. And I thought we would do one on feasting today. And and in this one, I love what caught my eyes. He's saying that feasting is like an act of war. It's the light fighting back against the darkness. And that brilliant quote by Martin Luther King, 
This idea of the love fighting back against the hatred. This is how we fight back. And so I'll be the celebrant and you will be the people. And we're just going to do a quick little call and response if that's all right. Can you read it all right? You guys see that okay? So I say, to gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends new and old and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. Amen. I love the permission given here. A discipline of savoring the good. Setting our minds on it. How do we fight against the darkness? With hope. With joy. With love and compassion. And the darkness that wants to sometimes overwhelm us can have, unfortunately, the opposite effect. It can make us shrink backwards. It can rob us of our joy. And I say this because I think I I sense a lot of this, even in the church, a, a sort of reactiveness that occurs when we are afraid, a tendency to want to circle the wagons, a tendency to to put our guard up. And this is the thing that we can we can fall down rabbit holes of different thinking and get so overwhelmed by focusing and dwelling on things that, that don't produce any fruit but just anxiety. Instead of putting first things first, focusing on the greater truths and letting that anchor us. Jesus is going to say, seek first my kingdom. Seek first that feast. And these other things will be put in place. Throw parties in the midst of the shadow of death. But we notice as we kind of unpack the wedding that that it's not maybe as simple just as that. That when these parties are thrown, Jesus is going to point out the fact that that those who are first invited have a tendency to not show up. That the people that feel like they're too important, too much of a big deal, that have this sense of like self-satisfaction, tend to not show up to the banquet. And part of that is because the ones that are invited to these feasts turn out to be the beggars. They're the ones who show up. This is what the wedding feast looks like. A celebration, a joyous celebration, but of sort of the, the lower class, the ones that get left out, the ones that aren't invited. But it's not that they're the only ones invited. They're just the ones that show up to this wedding feast. And as we're given this image of bringing this kingdom to earth, this shows us who should be on our guest list. 
how easy it is for us to throw parties for people that are going to up our, like, clout. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I throw a cool enough party, maybe Taylor Swift will show up and I'll kind of be a big deal, right? Like, we, we want to surround ourselves with important people. We want to invite beautiful people, important people to our parties. It, it makes us look good. And Jesus is like, that's not the party we're talking about. The parties that we're talking about are the ones that notice the people being left out. The ones that are being overlooked. That we have this opportunity to bring joy to them. We have this opportunity to bring dignity and value to the people who've been separated or cut off. And throwing these kind of parties, it's risky, I think, for our egos It's part of our own work is to learn how to generously invite people into this rejoicing from outside. And there's kind of two different difficulties to this. The first is like the bravery to throw the party. And on the other side, the courage to show up to the party when you're invited. I think as an introvert, I like so often want to be the one invited, but that doesn't necessarily have to go go if I want to. I'm like the slow RSVPer, which is terrible. It's where my wife is a wonderful balance for me. She's like, we're going, Jeff. Um, but, but this thing in me that's like, oh gosh, that sounds like a lot, you know, like a lot of small talk. What am I going to do? And, and the truth is, as an introvert, when I come away from this kind of, when I step in with courage, I find a whole nother level of value there. That the truth is we're like made for community like this. It's what brings our hearts to light, no matter how shy we are. That belonging in this deep need, it gets at something like core to our humanity. We need it to function, to stay healthy. And this is, you know, I've, we've talked about this idea that they're declaring in our country a loneliness epidemic that we're getting worse and worse at this ability to connect with each other. That this joy is getting further and further away from us. And where we dwell, where we set our minds, right? It's, it's just right here that we're like sucked in. What are we dwelling on? Well, whatever is the algorithm is showing us, right? Or whatever makes us slow down in our scrolling, Paul's going, no, 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 set your minds on things that are pure and noble and of value. Too often we're dwelling in this place that's making us smaller and smaller. And it's not to say that phones are the enemy. It's just technology has a way of bringing out the worst in us and making it even more efficient, right? I was thinking this, somebody was recently sharing with me, I I don't have TikTok, but... um, that there's a word that's used on TikTok that, to, that TikTok has this algorithm where if you use the word like death or suicide, it'll block your content. So they're using this word unalive as a way of kind of posting. It's a way of like sort of getting around the algorithm, I guess for now. But I heard that word and I thought, oh my gosh, that feels like the way things just move naturally in the world the sort of unalivening of our souls. I think this is the thing Jesus was pushing back against. He's saying, come alive. This is the way of abundant life. 
There's a scary prophetic quote by Nietzsche where he says, it's no feat to stage a festival, but rather to find those who take pleasure in it. It is no feat to stage a festival, but rather to find those who take pleasure in it. And he's saying we have all these entertainments and we're losing the ability to experience real joy. We're settling for substitute pleasures when our hearts are made for so much more. And for us, this becomes the opportunity in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of a world that feels hopeless, is to bring hope, to, to encourage people to live. I heard Krista Tippett say recently that her, like, animating principle is to make goodness as riveting as evil. How do we make goodness as riveting as evil? What a call that is. But this is what the church should be doing. How do we make beauty riveting? How do we live lives that bring beauty into the darkness? Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. The church should be coming from that place of deep stability anchored in a promise of the goodness that, that is to come. Tolkien, I like this, he says, the resurrection was the greatest catastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story. And fairy story there is capitalized. It's kind of how he saw the world through these eyes of wonder. He says it produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one, reconciled as selfishness and altruism. Oh, reconciled as selfishness and altruism are lost in love. And to me, I think I, I so appreciate this idea that this joy is not ignoring sorrow. It's in some ways, it's mixed in with it. The joy is in many ways how we combat the sorrows in our life. I've talked about how at times I've had sorrow and joy hit like almost back to back. And you're like, it feels bizarre to be torn in like such different directions. And yet I think God goes, no, no, no the joy is your strength. Hold the joy. Hebrews says we have this hope like an anchor for our soul. And you've probably heard me mention in the past, this this anchor was actually, they would do what was called kedging, where they would, in the midst of a storm, take an anchor out ahead in a small little boat. Guys would row it out and drop anchor way out there. And then that anchor would pull the boat out of the storm into safe harbor. And this truth, this promise of God's return that's foretold in His first advent that we await in His second is pulling us. It's a place of stability. It's a place of security. But too often we become unmoored, don't we? We lose our anchor. I don't know what that feels in you. It feels like turmoil, frenzy. And like I get caught up in this stuff. I get flooded 
I'm thinking how, you know, we've come out of a time of such separation, so much that was so confusing. And I think oftentimes my response to that when things get hard is what they call like ghosting, right? Where you just cut somebody off, right? Just separate myself from that. Okay, problem solved. But it's not solved, is it? That at some point these separations need to heal. But too often when we move back into those spaces, we find disagreements, we find struggles, we find people where we don't see eye to eye. And how do you re-engage in that way? And the answer here is that we, we move towards those people as we're here in the 23rd Psalm, towards enemies even. That we can live in this place of deep security. That we can bring joy even into those spaces, banquets in the presence of our enemies. But it takes discipline to do that. I had a conversation recently with somebody who the, my relationship had broken and just feeling God going like, oh, I want this to heal. I want this to mend. And, and in this conversation, I was just calling to go, hey, just I just love you. I love you. And... Um, what came back was a bit more of like, let's just say accusation or misunderstanding or, Jeff, let me tell you what you believe. If you want to set me off, just do that. Tell me what I believe. <laughs> right? And I'm like, mm. no, no, okay, I love you. I love you. Let's, can we just leave it at that? Um, but there's something in me that wants to fight back that way. I didn't say that. That's not fair. I'm wrongfully accused here. And they go, oh, no, no, no. Like, Jeff, dwell on what is good. And to realize it's such a discipline to not react, isn't it? But we do. We want to fight back. We want to engage that way. If I could just argue this down, then I've solved something. And this is not what's being held up to us. It's saying you respond back with love. Like Jesus would say, you turn the other cheek even. This is the way Christians engage. This is what we're called to. The hope that we bring is this non-reactive love, this compassion. We can love people that deeply disagree with us. We can love people where there's misunderstanding. And I think we have to be careful here. I'm not saying to dwell in toxic places. But we can learn to re-engage in these spaces with compassion. I love how Brene Brown says, you go into that with a soft front and a strong back. Somebody says, oh, this is what you believe, Jeff. That doesn't mean that that's what I believe. (laughs) I can have that sort of self-differentiation to go, you don't get to answer that for me but to not respond in a posture of a clenched fist, but an open hand, a soft heart. This becomes the strength of this posture, not in avoiding sorrow, but facing it, moving through it. When Matthew tells this story of the feast, there's an interesting character in it. We, we know all the people that in all the gospel stories reject the feast. There's somebody that shows up to the feast and isn't wearing the garments. And and as it turns out in in Matthew's telling of this, he's the dude that gets ejected from the party. 
And it's always been an interesting image to me. Why does somebody get kicked out of the party? And the truth is, he's not wearing the right thing. He's not wearing the garments. And you're like, wow, that sounds a little judgy of the host. Except everybody being invited to this party are the beggars. And they're coming immediately to the feast, which means that the person standing there is clothing everybody that arrives in the proper garments. This is somebody who said, no thanks. And it's an interesting thing for us to go like, oh, I'm coming to the party, but are we willing to be clothed in such a way that we're dressed appropriately? Maybe this person showing up thought his clothes were good enough, or maybe he didn't want to look like everybody else. Like all of them are wearing that, I'm going to wear my own stuff. Whatever the case is, there's this humility in being a guest at the party, a willingness to let ourselves be clothed. And this to me is a very important image that, that none of us come in and know how to love perfectly and well in these ways. All of us have to be taught. And Paul is going to even say, we're, we're like dressing up like Jesus. That when these things aren't our natural response, we behave in such a way. And in Colossians 3, he talks about these garments. What do we put on? And he says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These are the garments that we put on. We put on love. We put on peace. That we set our hearts on that. And this is how we live into the kingdom of heaven, into the feast. Some questions for you as we draw to a close. This first question I said, how am I tending the garden of my heart? (laughs) And I know we haven't really talked about gardens, but another sort of metaphor of what we're cultivating, what we're setting our minds on. Are we just pouring, filling our minds with all kinds of nonsense, right? The, the, The mindless sort of scrolling. Are we setting our hearts and minds on things of beauty? How am I tending the garden of my heart? I love how he's saying like even songs and hymns, like filling our hearts with music and beauty, things of deep value. I came across this quote, actually Patty shared, and I think it's from Corey Kelso, but um, the name is Sarah Ben Brethnock, and she writes this. Both abundance and lack exist simultaneously in our lives as parallel realities. It's always our conscious choice which secret garden we will tend. When we choose not to focus on what is missing from our lives, but are grateful for the abundance that's present. Love, health, family, friends, work, the joys of nature and personal pursuits that bring us pleasure. The wasteland of illusion falls away and we experience heaven on earth. This coming alive, this celebrating the abundance I make, sorry, this I didn't share in the first service, but I, I'm, I've said this before. I make coffee every morning in a Chemex. 
And I love, it's like a slow process. It's like part of my prayer ritual of the day. But I make coffee slowly. And one of my good friends who's in the coffee industry was like, Jeff promised me, it's at least with the first bloom of the coffee, just stick your face right in it and just smell the aroma. And it's been to me like a little window into this idea, rejoice, savor the goodness. When it comes, learn to like linger over it. When God does something in your life, a little answer to prayer, a little glimpse that he's there, savor it, chew on it. Don't just swallow it down, savor it. Question two, where do I need to soften my guard? How might I engage with vulnerability? with vulnerability as well as proper strength and security? How do I do this with wisdom and discernment, but also courage? To enter into those places bravely. I had a student say this recently, um, that we should, we should engage from our scars, not our wounds. And I thought, oh, that's, that's good, Right? That we're not like running into these places where we're bleeding and expecting ourselves to like keep our composure. We, we do need space to heal. But that's so often from our wounds. This is the place from our, from our scars. A brave way of reengaging. And the last, how are we inviting others into a non-anxious space of hope and peace? Who might I include? How might I bring joy to those in need? I've talked about this, how there was a year of my life that was so lonely. We had just moved when I was a kid. And I feel like God came in those spaces and, and really ministered to me. In some ways, like some of the most profound encounters with God happened in that lonely space. But as I came out of that lonely space, what I noticed were lonely people. I knew what it felt like, and I knew how to go and sit with them. How do we come from those places and engage, notice others, and move towards them? This passage in Philippians 4 is a classic, wonderful passage of Scripture. It would be worth setting the whole thing to memory if you're a memorizer like that. But the early church condensed this down to this sort of four-sentence prayer. And I thought it might be a sweet way for us to conclude our service today. They would say this, be anxious for nothing, prayerful in everything, thankful in anything, peace. Let's say that together. Be anxious for nothing, prayerful in everything, thankful in anything, peace. Peace.